This EdReach podcast is supported by the EduWin Awards. Let's take education forward this holiday season by nominating your favorite educator, parent, or student for an EduWin Award and share the positive about what's happening in education today. Your nominee will have a chance to join us at the March Q Conference in Palm Springs to be honored and to share their EduWin at a special event. Go to www.eduwin.org to nominate someone today. That's www.eduwin.org. Now, enjoy your show. I always mess it up. See, Jerry, I just need Jerry laughing there. So, Ed Gamer, episode 122 on EdReach. Teacher Craft with Sean Dickers. This is Ed Gamer for Wednesday, December 11th, 2013. Ed Gamer is part of the EdReach network. EdReach.us, giving education a voice. A big voice, as Jerry would say. Sean, Sean, can you do that for me? A big voice. Just give me a big... Oh, you're muted! There we go. Big voice. There we go. <laughs> this show is dedicated to education gaming on any platform. We will give you the education angle on any type of games, ranging from tabletops to MMOs. We will discuss how these games impact student learning and how they can be used effectively within the classroom. I'm Zach. I'm Sean. And Sean, who are you? Oh, uh, well, first of all, I'm a friend of Zach's. <laughs> uh, and uh, but I'm a I'm a researcher in games for learning at Ohio University. Uh, formerly, I'm part of the educational technologies group uh, here in the educational studies department in the Patton College of Education. Um, and I'm formerly a high school principal uh, in Minnesota, and I was a, a middle school teacher in Minnesota for ten years before that. There we go, and then. <laughs> I'm, you know, I have to tell everybody out here. I have to tell everybody. So, oh nope, cancel before I knock you off the screen here. Okay, I have to tell you that Jerry is not with us tonight. He is busy, so I'm in charge, which means I'm going to be all over the place. So, Sean, I want to apologize to you. Jerry's probably going to watch this later and, and just start laughing. So, I think he's probably thoroughly enjoying this. My name is Zach Gilbert, and I'm your host. I'm a sixth grade social studies language arts teacher from Normal, Illinois. And as Sean and I were talking about before the show about using Google Hangouts, it does take a lot of work to do. And I think Jerry just did this on purpose just to show me all the things that he actually does. Because, you know, sometimes he says, I just don't, you don't appreciate me, Zach. You don't, you don't appreciate me. It's not an easy thing to do. And from what you're saying, you're wanting to learn about that a little bit, aren't you, Sean? Yeah, it's one of my areas I want to work on this year. And I can say it's very easy because... <laughs> All I do is edit. That's the fun part for me. Right. The editing's okay, but uh, doing this part is quite difficult, and Jerry does an awesome job. So br I brought Sean on because we got reintroduced. I mean, we met each other at GLS this past summer, and we talked. Briefly. Really. And we talked, and it's just like, okay, that's another guy I can I can talk to and, you know, chat with and talk about games and learning and, and get along. And then then you were a keynote on Saturday during the um, uh, the Playful Learning Summit up in Whitewater, and we had a chance to sit down and chat, and then we had a chance to sit down and chat at dinner, 
and with Beth King, who is just wonderful. She's just, it was so nice sitting down with you guys. We sat down so long that I had to, it, something, I think my bottom fell asleep. Uh, it got a little, it got a little tired, got a little tired there. And, uh, we continued the conversation later. It was, it was a wonderful experience. I think sometimes, you know, you can go to conferences and do all these things, but it's the relationships and people that you meet, um, that are very important because you learn so much from them. So you, you're at Ohio university, not the Ohio state, but Ohio university. And what, what town is that in? Uh, well, it's all over. There's extension campuses all over. So it's the the federal land grant institution for Ohio. So uh, the one I'm at is the the headquarters or the the flagship one is in Athens. Okay. Uh, but there's also Ohio University Miami, which is almost equal size, about twenty thirty thousand students there. They, had a, they have a pretty former famous quarterback there. I I you you'd have to tell me all about some, that. Some some uh, guy named Ben Roethlisberger. Oh really? All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Miami University. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's a it's a it's a good. You said Miami University, right? Well, Ohio University, Miami. Oh, is it? Those are two separate. Is that the same thing? I think they might be different. I'm from Minnesota, Wisconsin, so <laughs> so if we're here to talk about Ohio, oh my goodness, you, okay. You got to give me a couple of years on that. It's going to okay. take me a little while to really get. To, you know, when I first got here, they told me in Ohio, like. What you need to know about Ohio is anybody who matters in history was from Ohio. Okay. And and, and you know that I'm finding out that that is kind of true. There's a lot. There's a lot. There's we have a, like significant number of presidents came yes, out you of do. Ohio. So it's yes, it's do. there's a lot of that. So I'm still learning that. And I don't know which presidents they are, so don't don't ask. <laughs> well, and uh, my grandfather met my grandmother in Columbus. In Ohio, at, at Columbus in Ohio, uh, right. when he taught, when he taught, actually, I forgot to mention this earlier. He actually started teaching at Ohio State, the oh, Ohio okay. State, and then he got a position to move down to University of Louisville. But he actually, as a um, uh, as a doctoral student, was teaching undergrad, right? And um, there was this nice beautiful young girl that was in the classroom. Now you got to understand, they're they were only like three years apart. So, you know, it was, it was one of those things that, you know, but he had to be a gentleman about it. He couldn't ask her out until the semester was over. So it all worked out because I'm here because, because of that. So that's, it's all good. And, and therefore you have Ohio in your history and this is the beginning of great things for you. Beginning of great things. It all started right there. So yeah. what are some of the things, I mean, we talked, <laughs> we ran the gamut of, of, of topics when we were up in Whitewater. And can you talk a little bit about your, you had a presentation which is on Gaming the Matter, which will be on our show notes, uh, GamingTheMatter.com, and GamingMatter.com, sorry. Um, what was that presentation about? So, well, we talked a little bit about, um, well, a lot of things. In fact, you know, one of the things Beth asked me to talk about was, she said, we want you to introduce the day or start the day off. So, you know, part of the discussion was really, what do we need to be talking about for games and education? Where is the field at? What do we need to be looking at next? And, like, what's stopping teachers right now from using games in the classroom? What are some of those things that are making... It's an interesting phenomenon, because people that use games in the classroom, this is prior to digital video games. I'm talking board games, Jeopardy for studying for tests, any sort of game-like teaching models. Usually those become very quickly a mainstay in a teacher's toolbox. 
they're teachers that do it and have tried it and have pulled it off well will never go back. They'll always use game-like learning in their classroom because it's a great way to engage and motivate. And you actually get deeper and more rigorous learning. And we know that now from a growing body of research. So why then doesn't every teacher look constantly for ways to integrate new and good games into their classroom? Um, and what's, what's the, the distance there? So that started a what's now a five-year journey for me, um, interviewing teachers around the country. And I started initially with teachers like you, Zach, teachers that I met at conferences that were doing amazing things in their classrooms and were willing to share what they were doing. So as a researcher, one of my jobs is to try to tell stories for people that don't have the time to write them up themselves um, and to record and document what's happening in those classrooms and how those teachers, you know, starting with the positive, how did those teachers come to use games in the classroom? And do we really understand that process a little bit? And initially, I can't say that this was a popular target because at the time, five years ago, there was still a real need. There was the discussion around violence in video games was stronger. It hadn't been as well researched. So Kuttner hadn't put out his book quite yet. Mm -hmm. um, the discussion of if games are good for teaching and learning was still being debated heavily, and there were people, you know, that trying to to gather that research. So this idea of well, why aren't teachers doing it? Um, it seemed fairly obvious. Well because there's still questions here. Um, for me, as a teacher that had used games in the classroom, including Civilization, um, I was you know, a big fan of the early Total War games as extra credit projects for students. Um, and Age of Empires was something that I was, you know, as a history teacher, I was like, yeah, if you want to go play that, I'll give you some points for it. Go nuts. So I did it very casually, but I also integrated in full you know, tabletop-sized game boards in my geography classroom. And we were, you know, scratching off with you know, getting our fingers messed up with, uh, you know, those laminate pens you use yes. on the overhead. Yep. You know, we used boxes of those in my classroom, playing these massive tabletop games. Um, so it, for me, it wasn't a question of are games good for learning. That, for me, wasn't that interesting. I, I was satisfied with the answer in my own life to the point where I wasn't really being inquisitive if I went out and researched that. But since that time, five years ago, this question, I think, has risen in prominence that teacher professional development and truly understanding how teachers learn through digital media has become an extremely relevant question because the research is now in place. We know games are, are, are effective for teaching and learning in a variety of ways. We've put to bed some of the issues around violence in video games, and we have a little more nuanced understanding of games as a digital media form, like movies or books or radio where there's different kinds of games and different kinds of experiences. It doesn't have to be digital. It doesn't have to be digital either. And, and actually, some of the board games in the last 5, 10 years, some of the Euro game influence on board games has been amazing. Yes. So I, I know teachers that use Catan, and I, you know, teachers that have after-school Dominion clubs and Magic the Gathering clubs. Yep. Um, th these are the sorts of things that can bring communities of students together around very complex thinking. And that's generally an exciting prospect for teachers that like kids. Um, and so those sorts of things, I think, are, are being fairly well established. And, and still the question remains, why aren't more teachers doing it? And, and what's, what is making it so that the teachers that do actually get there? So the keynote that I talked about, there's a long way to setting up the topic. The, the keynote that I talked about looked at research around the 2011 Teachers of the Year, Presidential Award winners, Ing Award winners, um, and overall, we gathered 39 of these national-level award-winning teachers, and we looked very carefully at 
what kind of personality, what kind of teaching habits, what kind of stories did they have. And we use the methodology where we track through interview their narratives. And narratives are kind of an interesting piece of data because people filter their narratives. So if I tell you a story, I'm telling you that story for a reason. I'm trying to communicate an idea, and I'm trying to get you to that narrative. So if I say, you know, tell me about your teaching career, you don't tell me every story over 15 years. You tell me the relevant stories. So it's a, it's a way to self-filter data a little bit. Um, and when you have no reason to doubt the veracity of the narratives, um, then you start to get at the core of at least what teachers perceive to be effective PD. So the core of my research was looking at that, what do teachers perceive to be effective um, professional development experiences? You get some wonderful photos to go along with that, too. Yeah, I don't, if you have those, you can throw them up on the website, of course. But, um, you know, of course, to start research like that, you have to go out and find out what's out there. So what do we know about PD? Uh, what does the field or what do experts say good and effective adult professional learning looks like and, and how do we do it? And what I found was that the discussion was largely around district level or principal level um, or even private firm level professional development experiences that were presented to teachers. And the question in the, in the literature was primarily, and, and I should say there were some exceptional and outstanding research, especially some of the research around professional learning communities, at least the early stuff. Um, and, but, but, but aside from those exceptions, the question was, how do we present things to teachers in such a way that they will transform their entire career in a day? They'll come to this one-hour session, they'll hear these great ideas, and they'll run off to their classroom and do it. And I'm overly simplifying and summarizing that process a little bit. So the experts would say, well, you don't just do it in an hour or a day. It's one year for every month you have a meeting, and, and throughout that process, people will eventually evolve their practice. But And if they don't, then the problem lies with the teacher with that model of thinking, right? So if they don't change, if they don't transform everything that they know and do and things that have worked for them in the classroom, then it has to either be that the teacher is being resistant to change or that the deliverers of the curriculum were not being true to how it was designed by the experts. So it's a question of fidelity or professional accountability. So then the question gets to be, well, how do we force teachers to pay attention and to do things we want them to do? Um, <laughs> And it's a, I mean, logically, it's a logic that I found really disturbing when I dug yeah. into it. And as a former teacher and principal, that's not the way adults learn. Adults don't go to one session and get an idea and then transform practice around it, no matter how good the idea is. There's something else that happens between first hearing about an idea and actually doing it. So the follow-up study was on Minecraft, and I've spent the last year... Um, interviewing some of the most amazing teachers I've had a chance to. I mean, some of these teachers were right up there with the award-winning teachers I met, and they fit all the same dispositions. They had the same learning habits. They had the same narratives about how they taught, how they learned. They were coming from the same kinds of uh, pre-service teaching training. Hmm. So the people that are innovating with Minecraft fit the profile of the award-winning teachers I had researched in previous years. And here's what's kind of interesting about those teachers. They don't think they're that great. 
I mean, when you ask, when you talk to them, they're the first to say, "I'm not that special." In fact, I stole all my ideas from Zach Gilbert. Um, <laughs> you know, I met this guy at a conference. He had some great ideas. I started playing with them a little bit and trying them out. And the next thing you know, I'm talking to you. And and they're all like that. And it, I actually had this fun daisy chain where. I talked to the, the award-winning teachers. The, the third-grade English teacher would say, well, I do what I do, and I know it's unique because I know you can never do what I do in a high school classroom. And you talk to the high school teacher, and they would say, well, I, I know that what I do is unique. It, it's special. Only people in my situation could do it, especially if you were in an elementary school. You could never do what I'm doing in the classroom. Hmm. Um, and it was great because they would be using some of the same pedagogical practices, but they were they were trying to be humble about it, saying, I know that I do this, but my colleagues next door don't, and I respect them, and I don't want to step on their toes. Because here's the thing about adult learning. Adult learning is extremely intimate and personal. Yeah. Um, I, I, the other thing that we see about adult learning is that it is a process. Um, it is never one thing that validates an idea, like using Minecraft in the classroom. It's always a process. Um, even the teachers that have done games and learning again and again and again with three, four different digital products. They've revamped their whole curriculum. When they first hear about a new computer game, they never go and try it out straight in a classroom. They go home and play it. Or they go bring it in front of some of their students and say, hey, have you guys ever played Minecraft? And what do you think of this game? So they, they put feelers out. And that, that process of feeling out if an idea or if a product might be useful takes, like for most teachers, a good school year. I mean, we're not talking about a, a slope. We're talking about a developmental process, not transformative, revolutionary processes. And that's what's scary is that, you know, I tell teachers over and over and over again um, that you have to try this. You, you have to do this before you do it in the classroom. It, it'd be like doing an experiment, a science experiment, saying, oh, I'll just read it off the paper and then we'll just try it in class and with the kids without trying it first on my own you don't do that you don't show a YouTube video that you've never previewed before you just don't do that and it, same thing goes with the video games you have to try it out and I think because the first instinct for gamers is to go and play that game first right you know, to try it out um, I, I think that's just a different mindset and I think something that we've talked about before too is that we are overwhelmed and sometimes we do look for that microwave version what can I do in my classroom that's really quick that's going to reach the kids and will be fun but if you don't fully understand it as a teacher you're not going to be able to fully implement it as a teacher yeah I you know I would I would agree with you almost entirely except for the fact that I do find some exceptions to that rule um, so there's kind of this sub-personality or, you know, I believe there's different kinds of teachers and that that's good. Um, so I don't, I don't believe that there's one kind of teacher or one method for this. So right. let, me, let me tell you a little bit about the exceptions to that rule. So most of the Minecraft teachers I talked to did, in fact, go home and try it themselves. They were avid gamers. They had gamer-like strategies for testing something, trying it out. Over half the teachers actually rejected Minecraft when they first heard about it and played it. Yeah. So it took like another teacher saying, you should really take another look at this before they actually did that. Or how about the kids? 
or the kids, like it becomes this thing with the kids and, and the in-tune teachers like tune into it. So there's that type of teacher that does those kinds okay. of very give you that. positive PD. There were there were three teachers out of the Minecraft people where I said, well, did you try Minecraft, Minecraft on your own before? No, they hadn't. So I went back through the data and, and through their narratives looking for like, well, okay, what's different about these teachers that didn't, they're not gamers, they didn't try it out at home, so th those kind of typical patterns weren't showing up with those teachers. And they do, the did, they, did they do the reverse method where it's like, hey, let's let's do this. I know that it's going to be okay, and then have the kids teach it back to them. No, so I, I've done that. I've done I've done that before. Where that's a, that's them. something that was pretty common with the gamers. The gamer people would be like, well, I don't have to play the game at home. I can send some of my students home and then have yeah. them come back to me with reports. Yeah. I think that's a great strategy because then oh, as a yeah. teacher, you don't have to play 20 games a year. Right. You can play the one or two. Because the, stu the students, them ownership too. The students will own it, and they'll also be honest. Like The, the good students will <laughs> yes, tell you will. if there's – they're not going to put you in a situation <laughs> where you use a product that has offensive content in it. They'll tell you, and they're usually hypersensitive to it. They'll be like, you know, Mr. Gilbert, there's this character that says – darn too many times. <laughs> and so you get that if you have rapport with your students. You'll, you'll get that feedback without having played. Here was what I thought was cool. Of those three teachers, all three of them had a gamer teacher friend that had used it before. So, And that flies in the face of this idea that if you hear about it through a lecture, you're going to try it. But if you hear about it from your fellow colleague teacher, a peer, so yeah. a peer that you trust, yeah. You're willing to try stuff out not knowing what it is. So one of well, them was a friend of Lucas Gillespie, who you know. One of them was a good friend of uh, Liam uh, uh, O'Donnell, which I think has been on this broadcast. A, um, well, Liam, is he the Minecraft? He's the Minecraft yeah. guy. They're in Singapore. No, I'm thinking of no. a Liam up in Canada, so maybe he hasn't oh, been maybe? on this one. Oh, um, now i got to so, write down because I'm going to be – he's probably wa watching or listening. He's like – he doesn't yeah. even remember me. He doesn't remember my last name that well. But this is episode 122, so yeah. it's, it's give us a little leeway. Yeah. And it's the end of finals week, so we're all kind of yeah. trying to keep up right now. Yes. You know, that was one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting is that what replaces experience with games is actually trust and relationship with mm -hmm. people. And we're not, in, in, in adult professional development, that's such a, if we don't understand that properly, we'll never build good professional right. development for our teachers. Well, what we do we do? We know that. We always steal. Yeah. You know, we always take something and modify it to use it for ourselves. But that also shows good teaching. Those three teachers, to me, to be able to have the trust in somebody else and to be able to modify and think on the fly, you know, think on the, you know, as you're going along, how is this going to be used and, 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 and use it properly? That's right. good teachers are able to do that. Well, and, and they're team teaching, right? In a, in a form, they don't necessarily have the same classes, but they're working with another teacher on a pedagogical concept right. so intimately that there's a that they're willing to trust them with, okay, what do I do this week? And right. So there has to be a confidence. So another mistake we make is we think that the new teachers coming into the field are going to save us when it comes to not just games no. and ed, but these young kids know technology. And... I don't see that in my research. I see that the young teachers are figuring out how to teach, and it's the mid-career teachers that are confident enough to do what you're saying, where they can trust another teacher, they can go to conferences and know what to listen for. 
Um, and that's only rooted in experience. But when half of our teachers are quitting before year five, yeah. that's a crisis of expertise in the profession right now. Well, and how many – in your involve, involvement in teacher education itself, do you find that the technology training for them is adequate? In my classes, yeah, it is. So if anybody wants to come all you see all you for their master's degree, we can do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, overall, but you know what? I run, I run, I run my teach classes very differently, and and students react to it, saying this is what they needed. Right. Um, so and, and I terms, based and student teachers that come to me, they they know those that are being placed in my room or others throughout my district know that they're excited because they're they're going to be integrated within that technology and and be able to learn. And that's the best way to right. learn anyways, by doing, not just sitting and watching somebody else, you know, use the technology or say, well, you can use a smart board for this and you can use an iPad for this. No, they need right. to use it. Yeah. Well, and if the teacher doesn't have the need for the iPad as an endogenous desire, like they know what they want it for, right? then I don't see the iPad having any more impact than research on interactive whiteboards, yeah. research on desktop computers, yeah. research on radios in the classroom. I mean, <laughs> read any Larry Cuban book over the last 30 years, and there's a strong case that dumping technology into schools does not change them. Um, it's a different tool with a different you know, casing on it. Right, and, and I had cassette tape players in my classroom that we actually used, and they were meaningful tools, but they were definitely outdated but they were still being used in an innovative way. So even outdated technology can be, can be transformed into innovative practice. They're, very, they're two different subjects. Um, but look at LA schools. They just dropped in... Uh, oh, how you know, many iPads? It, it's in the six figures. And, oh, and I, the number that's in my head is 640,000 iPads, but I don't, don't quote me on Don't put that out on the air or anything like oh, that. Oh, no, no, no. It's not like we're um, live on YouTube. This is anything. just a private talk. This is a private, private um, hangout. So it's, somebody online that's listening can, can hunt on that number for us, but it's, it's an insane number of iPads they just bought, and the budget for professional development, zero. Um, so it's, it's drop-in technology. That just blows my mind. It's, what, do you, yeah. what do you see as the – I mean, I always hear you spend a million dollars on technology – is it half or is it 100%? Do you spend a million dollars on professional development or $500,000? I know there's a, a common number that I hear every once in a while. Yeah, you know I, don't, that number? I don't know that there's a number on that that would be anything more than opinion. We don't. It's a hard thing to nail down as a fact. It's got to be more but than I don't zero. Steal your, I don't want to steal your thunder on that either. No. <laughs> there's I something think... out there that I hear that, you know, you spend so much money, you should spend so much money for professional development. And you yeah. get a lot where... I've had some. It's like they can look it up themselves. They can, they can do, you know, they can go, click help or the question mark on right. on the program or whatever whatever that was integrated. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. This is, it's ridiculous. Here, here's what I advocate for in an, in a in a period of time where personal technologies are on the rise. I mean, we're talking about intimate technologies, right? Yeah. I think that a district spending money on a tech budget should be for infrastructure. And then you should hand a significant portion of that budget that you used to spend on technology and give it to your teachers as discretionary funds. And those teachers will take that money and spend it so responsibly and so efficiently and so transformatively 
that it'll shock you the difference that one dollar can make in two different settings. One of the founders of this network, and he's done many other things, uh, Scott Meach, um, he did this in one of his districts. He, I think he had a plan where uh, they had so many, so much money per classroom and they could use whatever devices they felt would be useful for them. Or at least he came up with the idea. I don't know if he actually right. implemented it, but he said, what, what would you think about doing that? He said, if you could, because here's the thing, you're right, it is intimate. It's individualized. We're pushing, we have some groups that are pushing to individualization of learning, but you know, me as a teacher, I could, I'm going to use different technologies than the person next door to me and I need cert, I, I need something a little different. I might want to have a couple iMacs. I might want to have a few iPads. I might want to have some gaming laptops. I want to I want to vary that to fit what I would do in the classroom. And it would be different than what would be in right. the science classroom, in the math classroom, so on and so forth. Yeah. And and, and if you you have the ability to save that money for so a lot of bureaucracies will wipe budgets at the end of the fiscal year. Yeah. Um, but what if as a teacher you could save up for things? So, you know, let's say this year you don't have any technology needs. You can save that money towards bigger purchases later. You're very effective. I, I like to give props to uh, assistant principal in Oregon, Wisconsin, that I was able to have the privilege of seeing how they did things in that district. But it sounds a lot like Scott Nietzsche's thing. What John Tanner would do in Oregon, Wisconsin, is he would say to teachers, you can have any technology you want, but you need to bring me lesson plans that show me yeah. how, how you're going to use yes. that technology. And if yep. I can see that you are going to do something new or different, but you need a piece of technology, we'll buy it. Well, yep. the first year, very few teachers came in with curriculum plans. So he, he saved money on his technology budget, right. and he got teachers everything they wanted. Right. So it was... And, and then the teachers as, that didn't do it... Right, there didn't were teachers that didn't do it. They didn't need it, but they would also. You'd have some teachers that wouldn't want to get involved in it in the first place, and then they start seeing what these other teachers are doing, and by right. that process, you can bring them on board. So every technology dollar has jealousy points, and <laughs> that's a good use of money if what you're looking for is transformative right. teaching across right. the board. You don't mandate teaching from the top down. You let your maverick early adopting yeah. teachers show off. And yeah. then you let them do the in-service where they're saying, here's what I'm doing in my classroom. Yeah. So there's another trend in, in uh, teacher professional development that I find very interesting and fits right along with what I found in my research, which is the buffet-style professional development uh, workshop. You see this here? The feast. Yeah. So, so I was trying to set you up for that. Okay. Jack. So you yes. can talk a little bit about the buffet. Yeah, the buffet. What it means to have a feast when it comes to learning and what that looks like. It's a movable feast. I mean, the the feast.org is it's garnering, it's catching a lot of attention. It's one week, one week long. Um, it's you have some basic classes that teachers have to take to get introduced to what's going on, but then they can choose what they want to do that fits with their needs, and then they get and we have a five to one ratio of 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 teachers to, you know, however you want to say that, I guess facilitators to teachers, whatever right. the terminology you want to use, but you can get that one-on-one -on -one help and you have time, there's time set aside that you get to work, which teachers don't get that time to do. You go to a conference or you go off to a workshop and it's, you get all this information thrown at you and you have no time to map it out and see what's going on. And then you can get up 
one one thing that I was crazy at the beginning because this has been around what for 15 years. If you don't, if this doesn't fit what you want, get up and leave. Go to, go find something else. Yeah. Go find another teacher. So I, that, I actually think there's a degree to which, and 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 I don't want to play into this the stereotype and myth that teachers are resistant. But let's say you had one teacher in a hundred that doesn't want to be there. Are they really helping things along by being there and by forcing a teacher to go to a PD? I mean, are they really adding to your game plan as a district? No. Uh, and, and, and I would suggest that, you know, sometimes letting teachers have some autonomy as to what they go to and when they learn and where they learn and yeah. treating them like adults. Yes. Let's assume, let's assume that they're professionals. Yeah. They have to stay current to be professionals. Right. So when a teacher honestly looks at the, the whole buffet you've set in front of them at the feast and says, mm, there's nothing here, okay, then go back and do some grading and, and learn your kids' names before Thanksgiving. <laughs> like there's other things to do with right. your time. Teachers are extremely busy. Right. Um, and I think that allowing that freedom would not be the disaster that some people think it would be. I think what you'd find is uh, new kinds of, of learning happening with teachers oh, who choose to be there. I'm, I learn from them. They learn from me. Yeah. And this is during the summer. So, I mean, yeah. you choose to be there. But it's it's such a wonderful experience. To it, it's, it is joyful, I mean, to see the teachers come in and learn. And when they leave, they're, all of them are, I mean, a very high percentage uh, are supporting what, what's going on. And most of them come back. Yeah. Well, some come back. Here's another uh, another trend to, to throw out there for you, and that is um, the idea that, that all PD should have walkaways. So if I go to PD as a teacher, I'm willing to hear some ideas from a stage to some extent, but I also want to build a new lesson before I leave. I want to have curriculum in my hands ready to go for yep. next week. And there's a lot of um, like curriculum redesign teams that principals will take a set group of teachers with common academic or curricular right. interests and say, do you want to work together to integrate turtles into your curriculum across the curriculum? And then those teachers might work for a year together actually building new content, new lesson plans, mm -hmm. new kind of unit plans or projects and use them in their classroom. And that's actually a form of practicing the craft that we do, almost a clinical model of learning that I think is really, so I see a lot of good things happening, but I'm seeing them through the eyes of award-winning teachers, which is a very small percentage of teachers that are winning awards. So that's part of my logic with looking at those examples is that these teachers don't win awards in isolation. They have great colleagues. They go to great conferences and meet wonderful people. They um, have administrators that support outstanding PD experiences for them. Um, and they recognize that. They're the first right. to admit that they're not working in a vacuum. They're working within a system. Right. You have to – I need other people to bounce ideas off of and they, and vice versa. Um, they – you know, one of the things that we just added this last year was the Playful Learning. Uh, actually, the Feast was the first Playful Learning Summit or, you know, get-together. And hmm. there was one teacher that stood out. Uh, she took Quandry, you know, the game through uh, Learning yeah. Games Network. Yeah. She took that and played it and was just like, I could totally use this for teaching colonization and early American history and yeah. having the kids play the game and make comparisons to what actually happened. So, you know, it's it, you give them the freedom to come to something like that, to experiment, to come up with ideas and to have different areas of learning 
um, and, and different teachers. There's there's science. I mean, you have all subject areas covered. You can mm -hmm. always talk to somebody, and it doesn't have to be one of the facilitators. It could be another teacher that's there, and we encourage. That was the other thing too. We kind of gamify it a little bit to where we, you know, you participate. You're helping each other out. We can give what we call feast bucks, you know, and and give those out, and those are good for drawings at the end of the week. Right. But it's 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 fun. It's it's for fun. Learning is such a, a great experience, and uh, that's those are the ways that we can integrate games into the classroom. But I always I you kind of mentioned it before. You know, my wife could probably have a chalkboard and an overhead projector, and her kids would still learn at a high level. But one thing that she has learned over the years is that as she sees this technology. You know, come into her classroom, the smart board. She gradually integrates it. You uh -huh. know, each year she's seeing that. Yeah, you know what? This does and can enhance learning for my students, and it reaches some students that she might not have been able to reach as far with. You know, the basic method that she started teaching with. Uh, right. You know, just a few years ago. <laughs> I don't want to say how well, long she's and, been teaching, and, but you know, and everything you do, every tactic that you have is going to be reinforced or not reinforced based on student response. Right. So by the nature of the profession, here's the other thing. Teachers are designers. It's the job. Mm -hmm. So not professional designers. They're not making websites necessarily. But every idea they have for lesson, let's say you have five classes with 150 students and you teach, you know, you're in a bigger school so you teach the same subject five times. Ugh. Yeah. You know, I, it, I know it's it's painful to even it think is. about 750 student reactions to a lesson per day. Mm -hmm. So a teacher that's even been around for three years till they've got tenure easily has over 10,000 student reactions yeah. pocketed in the first few years, which is why those first few years are this kind of refinement period for teachers. But the way you describe your wife, she doesn't get a new textbook and transform her class. She gets an idea and it might take her four or five years of that iterative process of yeah. trying something, seeing which students react in what way, because maybe you get some buy-in from this group of students but these other learners are really tuned out. So a great idea for this population may not be what you need for a whole group of students. So as a teacher, there's lots of options and ways to do that. I mean, it's a profession. It's not something where I can just hand them a new book or hand them a new computer game and think that this will make life better for those students. It's a huge Good. calculation. really right. is because each year is different. Uh, her population has changed, you know, of, of different types of students that come in uh, to the school and to her classroom. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're constantly adjusting, and we're lucky we have this thing up here because it does a lot of calculations. And to be able to make those changes in her classroom, and it's very difficult. So you're talking about, you know, it could take three, four, five years to really get something honed in. And then you're throwing all these curveballs along the way. Right. And you have to readjust there. And one thing that's I'm getting a little scared of, and I know it, it's kind of done in other states, is the kind of, um, uh, what is it called, kind of predefined scripted lessons and following along and you've got to be at this point at this time of the year and so on and so forth. Right. That, That's called monkey box teaching. Monkey box. I haven't heard that term. It's monkey box teaching. You remember the, the, the monkeys that would do the... Do, 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 oh, do, yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. So if you just turn the crank enough, then good things will pop up. <laughs> and, and it's monkey box teaching. 
Um, but there's when you turn a crank, there is no variation or ver or independent decision making. Yeah. There's no creativity. You just turn that crank, and you better do it every day, and you better be at the same turn as all the other teachers because we want all the students to pop out magically at the same time with the same abilities. It's ridiculous thinking it to the point where I don't even like talking about it. it just makes me cranky. Okay, we're done um, with that. So. But what I will say, like the walk away from all this, if I could change gear, yeah, um, I, I could sit and rant on that for you too. But I don't know. Oh, if I'm I sure you can. But I, I've I've gotten your I've got your vision on it, and it's <laughs> it's dark and gloomy. So just it's not a pretty picture. Huh? It is it is the enemy of what we're dealing with in education right now. But here's the good thing. I think that hey, the, I, quick, hold, hold on to that thought. Okay. Because I was wondering about this. My lights flickered earlier. I don't know if yeah. you noticed anything. And then, so I got a I got a friend of mine. She just said our power's out for almost ten minutes. So, wow. so it's just like, yeah. So if if power goes out, <laughs> if it goes dark, we know the show's over. So okay, it's not like so, it's cold out either. So right. Okay. So, so, so my walk away is I think that I think that what we've been talking about tonight is very encouraging for teachers because here's what it means. <laughs> Pull it out because I'm we'll, I'm, I'm, I'm oh, we'll yeah. walk away from the monkey box okay. because that's but here's what we have to present in as an alternative to monkey box teaching okay and that is you don't have to be a gamer to do games like teaching you no. have let's give you a break you don't have to we we don't have to introduce you to Minecraft and tomorrow you're using Minecraft in your classroom as a core curricular tool. Right. You can simply start showing up to the after-school game club that some other teacher runs yep. and hang out for a little bit. Oh my goodness. And you can do that for two, three years, and you are within the framework of the nation's best teachers and how they have learned. They, don't, they don't do the top practices in a year. They spend seven years refining and getting yeah. the idea worked out to do it well. Yeah. And and I think that's really encouraging. I think that we can move past this idea that a great lecture will transform a teacher or that a great idea or a wonderful game like Quandary is going to transform your science classroom. Right. No. Maybe in five years it will. Yeah. But the first year you just should learn about it and play it at home. Year two you should maybe dabble with it as an extra credit project and get student feedback and learn something about what they get out of it. Right. and have some constructive ideas around lesson planning. And in year three and four, you can try it and fail miserably, but then something clicks. And in year five, you got it down, and you know what to do with this thing. So I think that takes a lot of weight off of teachers, especially when you have people like us that are gamers that have used games in the classroom, and we get really excited about this yeah. because we've seen the positive results with students across learning styles, different ages, different subject areas, different personalities, that games are an effective way to motivate humans in general. And they're rigorous, yeah. and they are passionate, and they require good ones require a lot of creative thinking on the part of students. So when we, say, when we say these things are great, and teachers are like, yeah, I'm just not a gamer, okay, and I, I th then let yourself off the hook. Yeah. Don't be a gamer. You don't have to be that person. Um, Get to know a gamer teacher and hang out with them and be friends with them, and that way people like you and me will have more friends. <laughs> I tell you what, you know, I had 35 to 40 kids again last last Friday, and I just sit. I took a panoramic photo with my, you know, iPhone and just the whole room, and they are all 
engrossed. And people, you know, you always hear, oh, they're loners. They're all no. You, the the talking and the relationships that the, these kids build, it's just awesome. And you're seeing so much learning going on. I had a kid that that started his own Dungeons and Dragons uh, little quest. Uh, he had a scenario picked out. Uh, and he's leading this this group of kids, and they are just totally getting into it, totally getting into it. And it's just so much fun. I got kids playing board games. I got kids playing Civilization. I got kids playing on their DSs. I got kids on iPads. I get they're all over the place. Right. They're doing so many different things, and they're having so much fun, and they are learning. And people that come in and see this, you get some teachers that walk in and walk right back out. Because they're like, what's going on? You know, yeah. I'm not going into this thing. Yeah. But man, when they, when those that come in and see it, they're they're amazed. It's just so yeah. much fun. And I get so many different groups of kids. I've got jocks all the way down to the, you know, the geeks and the ner you know nerds and, and whatever you whatever you want to call it. Because I'm one of them as it is. So yeah. it's an awesome realm, and it's it's so much fun. So much fun. Hey, I think we're going to have to end this up here soon, really quick here. But uh, I'm going to put some things on here that we were kind of <laughs> talking about. You need to go to GamingMatter.com and check out the website. There's tons of great information in there. We also added a, uh, a link to – it's a video about the, the PISA test. Uh, it's an international test that goes every three years. It kind of breaks down the, the data in that and, you know – all the major news outlets talking about how we're 37th in the world and and whatever it is. And no, you need to look at data. Data has so many different angles to it. But the last one here, have you ever played Small World? No. You've never played the board game Small World? I've never played the board game Small World. In my family, we're Dominion and Catan fans. Uh, you're gonna, you would love Small World. Okay. You okay. have an iPad, don't you? Somewhere, yeah. We have a couple of them around okay. here. Okay. There's it's Small World 2. You, you have, I'm guessing you have Steam. Oh yeah. Okay. So they just released it. It's 11.99 on Steam. It is a fun, fun board game. So um, and it's it's out. They just released it. Well, they've made some huge updates on um, on the iPad. It's now I think it's on Android. I think it is. And then it just released on Steam for PC. And you can play online. You can play uh, with your friends. You can play. They can match you up. You can play solo. The AI is pretty tough. Um, but it's a fun, fun game. I think you would enjoy it. It's a okay. European. It's uh, Days of Wonder. Oh, yeah, okay. So, you know, a lot of cool things there. So, anything, anything else on the horizon? I mean, you're, you know, I love. I put the uh, teacher craft with, you know, Sean Dickers here. Um, you're writing a book about these using teachers. Minecraft. Yeah, these teachers, and these. and and trying to map out. Um, how teachers not only came to use Minecraft, which is kind of what we talked about tonight, how do teachers come to use things, but also kind of bringing all of these great ideas and fleshing them out for teachers. So if you started in Chapter 5, you would just start in on, and here's how Joel Levin used Minecraft, and here's how Steve Elford used Minecraft. And So we, we took some of the top teachers in the country, actually around the world, um, and showed some of their ideas. And these teachers are sharing some of their websites and worlds so that book is everything on my horizon right now. It is filling my view because um, we are nearing, uh, hopefully by January, February, we'll have the full manuscript done and ready, and then it's a matter of having artists ready to go. So we're hoping for a release this summer, early this summer. Ooh, um, maybe for GLS? 
Maybe for GLS, right. And, uh, and really, summer reading for teachers is when um, teachers like to sit down with a book, which I still think is hilarious. Like, I'm gonna, we're talking about a digital video game through a book media. Um, but it kind of works, too. Like, there's that mix where we have our media diets that we like to have. And sometimes <laughs> it's fun to just sit down and read about great teachers. So I'm really excited about this book. I would also promo, too, that mobile media learning, there's going to be a second version or there'll be a mobile media learning two oh, yeah. book. So the first book was just nine great ideas on how people are using augmented reality in their classrooms. And Chris Holden is spearheading the second one. Oh. And he's collected 15 stories just to one-up the first one <laughs> uh, of just more great ideas where teachers are doing some stunning things in their classroom. And we don't do enough of this. We need to tell each other stories. Um, so those are the two big things on the horizon right now, Zach. Okay, that sounds that sounds great. I think we need to uh, yeah we got to wrap this up. So um, thank you so much, Sean, for joining. Thanks Appreciate for having it. Me, and and thanks we'll, for all you do with us. I know we'll do this again. And I guess I have some writing to do myself, don't I? Sean's I asked me to write a little bit in, in this uh, Minecraft thing. Right, and 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 I'm excited about that because you're going to talk about how to build the after-school club. The game clubs, which yep. I would say is the entry-level drug for most teachers that yeah. do games in the classroom is do something after school with them. So that's going to be a pretty key chapter in that Minecraft book because I think like it's it. more than just Minecraft. So Oh, it is. I think it we is. have one of the best for that chapter. Well, thank you very much. And you know who I learned that from? The, who gave me the idea was Joel Levin and then Lucas yeah. Gillespie. It, you know, we learn from each other. Yeah. Hey, thank you for listening to this week's Ed Gamer podcast. Please follow us on edreach.us and also follow all the great podcasts and blog posts on the EdReach Network. Have a great week.